these legislation, what they do, you can't, you can't bring back the people who already served 40 years. You can't bring back the people who died in prison. But you can at least create legislation that will release those who should have been released years and decades ago. And at least it will, it will at least guarantee to an extent that the next generation will not suffer the same injustice. Hi, I'm Jen Ching, Executive Director of North Star Fund, and welcome to our podcast, Meeting the Moment. North Star Fund has been funding grassroots groups who are fighting to end mass incarceration for more than 40 years. We've been a part of many victories along the way, but we also have a long way to go. Historically, New York has locked up a higher percentage of our residents than almost any democracy on earth, and black New Yorkers are five times more likely to be imprisoned. Over the past two years during the COVID pandemic, by every metric, New York's incarcerated individuals have been left unprotected. Thousands became ill, many died, and more continue to get sick even today. Our grantee, RAP, Release Aging People in Prison, commonly known as the RAP Campaign, won't settle for things as they are. RAP was founded and led and is led by formerly incarcerated individuals. And in this episode, our communications director, Kathleen Pequeño, interviews Jose Saldana, the current director of RAP and a formerly incarcerated New Yorker. Kathleen has been fighting mass incarceration and working on restorative justice issues for 20 years, and their conversation touches on all the ways organizing within and against the prison system challenges and strengthens our collective humanity. I want to thank Jose and RAP for being a part of Meeting the Moment. They are just one of our many grantees who have been doing life-saving work in New York, both before the pandemic and especially throughout, fighting for the freedom and dignity of New York's incarcerated communities. Let's listen to how RAP is meeting the moment. I'm Kathleen Pequeño, Communications Director at North Star Fund, and for this episode of Meeting the Moment, I'm interviewing Jose Hamza Saldana, Executive Director of the Release Aging People in Prison Project, or RAP. RAP is led by formerly incarcerated people and the family members of people in prison, and they're organizing to end mass incarceration and promote racial justice. RAP's been a North Star Fund grantee since 2015, and we're proud to fund them both via our New York City Organizing Grants, our Future of Organizing Fund, and also via our Let Us Breathe Fund. So, Jose, welcome to Meeting the Moment. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. When we were talking about uh, who to bring on for episodes, you know, we we have so many grantees that we're doing powerful work right now. It was hard to think about focusing on just a couple. We invited RAP to the podcast because we wanted to share how you've been able to keep the pressure up throughout the pandemic. Now, for our listeners who are on the RAP list, you know, but for those of you who, who don't know, you know, uh, RAP was a presence in Albany before the pandemic. You know, Albany is where so much of the policy that keeps um, our aging people in prison is decided. And during the pandemic, even with the lockdowns, even with cancellations of in-person visits for quite a while, even with all the, the the pressures on changing instantly how we organize, RAP kept the pressure on. I have to say, RAP was doing outdoor rallies, Zoom lobby days, Zoom speakouts, Zoom uh, media media events, every kind of Zoom. You were so amazing and in, in, in keeping people talking about our incarcerated friends, family, loved ones, and neighbors. You didn't let up. 
And so I'm excited for you to talk with us today about how you've adapted your organizing to the limits of the pandemic, you know, how you're going to keep it up, what you're excited about. I want to start with just some of what you've been doing since the summer of 2020. First, you know, we are formerly incarcerated for the most part. Um, I was released from mm-hmm. prison after 38 years of incarceration. So I left behind some very, very dear friends of mine. And friends who yeah. were my age, you know, late 60s, early 70s, or older. So when the pandemic hit, my first thought was that I'm so grateful that I am free and not in a prison cell. Mm-hmm. And I thought about the men mm-hmm. that I left behind who have most mm-hmm. of them are elder people. They are vulnerable. They yeah. have health conditions. And I understand fully that the Department of Correction will not protect them. Because I'm basing this on a reality that I lived during the HIV AIDS pandemic. And I've seen the Department of Correction response. And it was always punitive in nature. I've seen other health outbreaks, Mm -hmm. the tuberculosis, hepatitis C. And all these serious life-spending outbreaks in the New York State prison system were met with punishment. Not a medical protocol, but mm-hmm. punishment. So I understood that when this mm-hmm. thing hits our prison system, that the men and women languishing in prison would not be protected. And sure enough, that's exactly right. what happened. They were not even allowed to have masks. So those who use a handkerchief just to mm-hmm. protect themselves, to put it over their face, were punished. And if you went to mm-hmm. medical complaining about symptoms, they would not do anything about it. They would tell you to go back to yourself and take two aspirins. And sometimes they won't even right. see them. So we knew that we had to amplify the condition of the men and women in our prison systems. And we did everything within our power. We got a lot of press coverage. We did some small rallies, social distancing. We even did them outside Mm -hmm. of prisons to get attention. And and, and at that time, the governor was actually parading the fact that the Department of Correction, industries in the Department of Correction have actually produced the hand sanitizer that people in the streets were actually Mm -hmm. using as a health preventive measure. But incarcerated people who labor, whose labor was used for it were not allowed to use it because right. of Could, did not actually have access to that same. They yeah. were not allowed to use it because they had alcohol base. So our advocacy efforts mm-hmm. and, and uplifting this, bringing it to the attention of the public, actually forced the governor to allow the incarcerated men and women to at least use the hand sanitizer and to have access to masks, which the CDC has recommended. They didn't exclude incarcerated people from this recommendation, but the Department of Correction did on behalf of incarcerated people. But we we advocate for two bills. We had to kind of set them aside with our focus on clemency because the men Mm. and women who are most vulnerable were likely, if, if they contacted this virus, they were likely pass away. So our focus shifted from legislative initiatives, pushing two bills to mm-hmm. clemency, making demands mm-hmm. on the government 
to free these elderly people who are the most vulnerable. All health organizations are saying that the elderly are the most vulnerable, and we have them in our prison system. We have literally thousands of them. So we focused all our attention on clemency campaign, and we gave the governor names of people who we personally knew, we were in contact with hundreds, mm-hmm. all have on the line of health conditions. Now, while the governor did not free grant the clemency to the people that we had, we was trying to get out. Unfortunately, some of them died. He did grant clemencies to people who were not convicted of violent crimes. So, you know, we did have a victory there, but not full victory mm-hmm. that we were hoping to, to, to get. So, uh, and, and, and I think that it, 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 not only that, we also were demanding that the parole board expedite hearings of the elderly people. So that if they're within a few months of going to the parole board, there is no need for mm-hmm. them to wait in a few months because one guy in particular who we knew, he went before the parole board, got granted parole, 60-year-old black man. And then while he was waiting to be released, that eight-month process, and we, we try to say shorten that process, while he was waiting to be released, right. contacted the virus, and he died. So, you know, we, we tried to inside, work, inside, we try to, you know, yeah. uh, uh, call on the parole board to expedite hearings of the elderly people and expedite their release once they're granted parole. Great. RAP has always made a connection between mass incarceration in New York State and anti black racism. Are, are you finding that people are receiving that differently now? I think because of the Black Lives Matter movement, which, you know, I mean, the Floyd murder was was just so, so horrific. And and, and it Mm -hmm. it triggered something, you know, it it awoken the consciousness of the nation, so to speak. And and we've seen the people involved in in, in this movement and these demonstrations, I mean, all walks of life all ages, all genders, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, everybody was just involved in this because, you know, for the, for the first time, perhaps some people actually seen what it means to be a black man in America, what racism mm-hmm. really looks like. And, and you know, mm-hmm. we've lived with this our entire lives, but some people never experienced anything like that, never heard of anything like that. Right. It was so remote to their existence. So I think that that helped on... on Ignite a, a, a consciousness that this is real. Mass incarceration is a reality for Black and Brown people, and that helped us deliver the message in our narrative. Mm-hmm. Were better people were more receptive. I think some of our legislators were more receptive because they joined the marches. You know, so we, you know, we was right. able to, you know, have the conversation with them. Well, if you join a march anti-racism marks, but then there are people right in your state in prison that are being murdered and brutalizing and have no cameras, have no access to a phone that can take 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 pictures of this whole thing, videotape the, the atrocity of, of what's going on, then you have to also recognize that that is a terrible injustice. And we pitch our pitches that the only real solution to cure to at least try to rectify this type of injustice that mass incarceration has created is by 
by releasing people because these legislation, what they do, you can't you can't bring back the people who already served forty years. You can't bring back the people who died in right. prison. But you can at least create legislation that will release those who should have been released years and decades ago, and at least it will, mm-hmm. it will at least guarantee to, to an extent that the next generation will not suffer the same injustice. So we was able to deliver that message in a clearer way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, to me, part of what's so powerful is that you, you it was the same message you were delivering before, you know, right, right before uh, 2020. It's just that now people are more receptive to it. Part of what's what's interesting i think about meeting the moment is sometimes it is kind of about like how were you ready you know for for a time of crisis like a lot of times when we look back you know that's part of what we're looking at it's like oh it turns out that i that i was more ready than i thought you know and i mean at north star fund you know in early 2020 um we were just getting ready to announce our, our our newly adopted strategic plan. And we were just recommitting through that plan to our focus on funding grassroots organizing based in, in BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities in New York. So we had just kind of recommitted to that and we were really getting ready to be like, you know, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to stay focused on that, you know, funding organizations like RAP. And then when the crisis hit, then we were like, like everyone, I think we were so shocked and there was so much adjusting to do. And we were like, wait, we just have to focus on what we've already figured out and doing it more, doing it better, you know, um, putting that in the center. And so in some ways that enabled us to do some things that not a lot of funders have done. I guess similar, you know, when I think about Rapid, a number of our grantees, I'm like, right, there were decisions and clarity you already had that really meant you could just go and it had helped you respond to so many different crises at once. I guess when you think about it, you know, what about your work before 2020 particularly prepared you for this time where we're, we're now like called on dealing so many crises at the same time? You know, that's just kind of what, that's kind of what the world is right now, <laughs> you know, but what, what about, you know, before that, what prepared you? We, we were already dealing with a crisis you know, this, mm-hmm. you know, this pandemic right. just amplified it. Just remember that, you know, in prison, you know, mm-hmm. most of us that's languished in prison, you know, we were dealing with a health crisis for years and decades. The substandard health mm-hmm. we get always produce a health crisis. So, you know, we, right. we, you know, we looked at the elderly in trying to address that condition of people getting old, sick, and dying mm-hmm. in prison, you know, we looked at that from right. a real lens because we, most of us experienced that. Most of us been there. So, yeah. you know, it, it was always a crisis for us. We were just able to mm-hmm. jump right into it, and now our message became clearer. They became, they, they, you know, people started looking at this, well, you know, the governor just finished saying that, he acknowledges racism in policing, and he acknowledges racism in, in the criminal legal system, but does nothing about it. So at least he gave validity mm-hmm. to what we were saying. He acknowledged that black mm-hmm. and brown people receive substandard health care. Well, if they receive substandard health care in our society, you can imagine what's happening in the prison system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we was, we was prepared to use everything we can to amplify 
this crisis right. was happening in, in our prisons. And, and I think, and we really believe that because we took the initiative on this early on, that we helped save lives. Mm -hmm. you know, just imagine if the people yeah. we were connected to would have not listened to what we were saying out here. We, we were telling them to just wear a mask, put a handkerchief on them. Even if you don't leave your cell, people were so concerned. They, they, were, they were just desperate for information. For and, information, and yeah. They came to us and we was able to give them correct information. We was able to at least give them some kind of hope that their loved ones uh, at least are following some type of protocol early on and, and that they, they, they should just, just have faith. But they had nowhere to go to. The Department of Correction weren't receiving their phone calls. We were, we were their source of information and their source of hope. And this is why today we have their support all the way. And our movement is actually led by families yeah. and great Americans. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think when we talk about sometimes like save, like what saves lives, I think people think of kind of the heroic measures when people are, are near death. I think the sort of interventions you're talking about that are, you know, farther upstream where you're like, we're talking with people when no one else is about keeping themselves safe, that it's not, it doesn't like sound or it maybe doesn't like look very heroic that versus like heroically busting in and like right. and, uh, and saving them. So yeah, I, I do appreciate that you all were doing that education because you're right in in prisons for generations now a lot so much of the health education that that you know goes to incarcerated people comes from their peers you know where people are helping each other to stay safe and to get through what is one thing that your glad rap didn't do in response to these to these crises well we, you know we we advocate for legislation that does not exclude anyone so while it was it was probably you know a, a more uh, uh, favorable with the government for us to advocate for nonviolent people, people who have committed nonviolent right. crimes, you know, but we maintain that principle that we are advocating for elder people and people who have served long-term prison sentences, irrespective of the crime of conviction or the length of sentence. So we stood on that fundamental principle. And, and in a time of crisis like this, where, it, you know, some people, you know, were actually advocating for nonviolent or drug offenses to get them out or to just get the people who have parole violations, you know, which is fine, which is really super great that mm -hmm. everyone should get out and not be in a prison cell to die. But we didn't leave anybody behind in our advocacy. And that's that's something you know. This is our fundamental principle, and we just won't won't abandon it, even in a time of crisis. We felt we still feel that mm -hmm. the most vulnerable, no matter who they are, no matter what crime or conviction they have, they should have been received the same type of compassion that other people deserve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Jose. And can you tell me who's inspiring you now? Who do you take inspiration from these days? I'm inspired by families, you know, we, you know, families who come to us who, who have been lost, really, literally lost. They, I mean, they had nowhere to go. You know, we have wives and mothers and sisters who, who have incarcerated loved ones for three decades, you know, 
35 mm-hmm. years, almost 40 years, and, and stuck with the, the brother, stuck with the husband, and, and, you know, kind of, you know, like like in my case, you know, my wife stuck with me, my kids stuck with me, and, and you know, that's admirable. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, that is mm-hmm. admirable to stick with a man who's serving a life sentence, and you just don't know when they're going to get out. Right. But these women didn't give up, even when they had nothing. They had, I mean, they came to mm-hmm. us as a last hope, you know. And, and, and I, I looked at that. I said, "Wow!" And and this is the reality, you know. When we look at the visiting room, who do we see coming to see the incarcerated men? Mm-hmm. The women, the mothers, the aunts, the sisters, an occasional dad. You know, but these, are, and, and I've always found that to be so admirable, you know, that a human mm-hmm. being can go on with their lives and not forget a loved one who has been in prison. Really, we've been sentenced to die, but our families do not give up on us, especially our wives and our mothers and right. our sisters. And, and I, I, I know my inspiration comes from them. And I see that once mm. we give them a hope, of their loved one can finally come home through this campaign, through this mm-hmm. movement, the energy that they bring to this is phenomenal. It is really, I mean, they become so yeah. energized and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get their loved one home. Yeah. And to me, that, that's an example. That's an example of what love is all about. Yeah, it's love as an action, right? Not just love as an emotion. I'm thinking about your members they're family members of incarcerated people. They're formerly incarcerated people. They show up and they're they're sharing a truth about what's happening in New York State because of these long sentences. And I agree, they're so inspiring because they're up against one of the biggest, cruelest institutions in our state, and they just keep showing up. I think we can learn a lot from them. And as you're reflecting on this time, what lessons are you taking? What's the biggest lesson you're taking from the times that we're in now? The lesson I take from history, and which really defines who we are today, you know, the, the, the enslaved Africans, you know, the white supremacists, they tried to exclude them from the human race. And they continue, it's happening today, too. Mm-hmm. But they, I mean, literally, literally and, and, and constitutionally tried to exclude the enslaved Africans from the human race. And they excluded them from anything else after that. You know, any, any, any mm-hmm. rights and privileges that they share, enslaved people, the indigenous people were excluded. So this, this, this history of exclusion, that certain rights and privileges only belong to them, is something that we could never replicate. So when we promote mm-hmm. parole justice, we promote it as a human right that no one should be excluded from. And I think that when we stick to that, to me, that is a valuable lesson that we cannot abandon because if we do, we are replicating their policies, racial policies of exclusion. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier the elder parole bill, your calls to fully staff the parole board, your bill for just and timely parole. How are these campaigns going? And as you think about 
2022. What's the 2022 outlook for these campaigns? Well, we ended last session, the legislative session last year ended in June. Uh, um, or rather this year, it ended in June. And, and we ended on a pretty solid note. We thought that at least one of our bills was going to uh, at least reach the floor, which means that they would be the, uh, the senators and the assembly people would have an opportunity to vote for the bill. Because we believe we have the votes. You know, we have the co-sponsorship. We're a few votes short of the co-sponsorship. We have 27. We need 32. But we had eight or nine commitments, which would bring us over that threshold of 32 in, in the Senate and 76 in the, in the Assembly. So we believe we have the numbers. We just need our leadership to have the political will to put it on the floor for a vote. And we ended with them not doing that. You know, it was disappointing. Um, we, we went back and we, we were, we're still strategizing on what we could do better, what we could do new. And, and we're coming back. Mm -hmm. This session starts in January. We're coming back with a lot more firepower. We have built a coalition that is perhaps the most powerful coalition in the history of our state for this, for these two bills. We have countless just family members supporting us. We have just about mm -hmm. every cross issue uh, advocates supporting us. You know, we, we, we've had advocacy days that were exceptional, you know, from gender mm -hmm. justice, yeah. parole justice, you know, survival justice is parole justice. And we're also talking about survivors. You know, they're also being, they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're treated the same way. You know, they're not there. The fact that they have survived, you know, interpersonal harm means nothing to the system. So they're in our camp. Mm -hmm. So we, 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 we brought everybody together because this, this, this human, we're talking about human justice. You know, we have housing people who are in, involved in, in this campaign for parole justice. So we have this powerful coalition. We have so many family members, like I said, and I think that we're going to come into this session coming up and we don't give a damn about this being an election year. You know, a rest year for our right. electors. Like they're supposed to take time off because they're too concerned. Their primary objective is to stay seated in their office. We don't want to mm -hmm. hear people's lives depend. Right. On You're them. like that's not the job. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So so you know we're the job we're, is we're, legislating. You know. So we're 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 firing at all mm. angles, and we're not going to accept that this is an off year for them. It just that's not acceptable to us. Do you feel like people are making more connections now between the between, you know, work around mass incarceration and other, and other uh, social justice organizing in New York? Is is that you know, in your experience, is that changing these that, days? That's definitely changing. I, I, you know, we see it, and, and it's relatively new that we have so many people from cross sector issues. You know, because we support them also. You know, whenever the housing people have a demonstration, right. you know, we're talking about a system. This, 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 this racist system impacts everyone. It mm -hmm. impacts housing. It, it impacts, right. you know, people that, that, that are incarcerated, people that are faced with the criminal legal system. It impacts people just having confrontation with policing. So we're talking about a system that, that we all have to come together to dismantle. And I, and I think a lot of your leadership from these other organizations are seeing that this 
has to be done. The system is like an elephant. You can't eat it in one bite. So this is what, what, we, what we're all <laughs> trying to do. We, we're all trying to take this elephant down. Mm-hmm. We can't eat it in one bite. Yeah, for sure. And we've seen grantee coalitions come together that really are greater than the sum of their parts, and they've been able to win some really important victories for statewide campaigns. You know, on a related note, RAP has been expanding with organizers outside of New York City. And I'm wondering, how is that changing your organization and how is it going to change your ability to impact policy? We're organizing communities mm-hmm. in upstate New York, in Westchester, and in Long Island because for the most part, some of these communities in these areas are definitely impacted by mass incarceration. And the electors are not mm-hmm. representing them. They're only representing the, community, the more fluent communities who are not impacted by mass incarceration. So we're getting, we're getting these communities, you know, building power with them so that they could actually, you know, press upon their electors that it is in their interest and they support parole justice mm-hmm. and that he or she should also support parole justice if they want to continue to represent them. Yeah, and family members, uh, you know, probably face a different type of isolation when they're outside of New York City, family members of incarcerated people. Yeah, absolutely. They don't have the resources. They don't have, you know, they don't have, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have the support system, you know, in certain areas of our yeah. state. They just don't. So we're actually, you know, we're involved in that also, trying to galvanize them where they could, you know, organized around getting the type of support that they need. What are you most excited about as you look forward to 2022? I feel good about, yeah. about coming into, into this. Um, there, there, there's, you know, too many people have died in prison. Uh, I, had, I just had mm-hmm. very, a, a, a very True. dear friend of mine after 40, spent 45 years in prison, went in at 17. So we, we're, we're, you know, we're highlighting this, 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 this travesty yeah. of Young people going in at 16, 17 years old and then die in prison in their mid to late 50s. So this is something that is, is mm-hmm. so horrific that we know that if it was happening to white kids, there would be mass outrage. So we're bringing this to their attention. Mm-hmm. We're realizing, man, that this is, this is a, a travesty of the worst kind. Columbia University just put out a report. Death by incarceration, the New York death penalty. And, and it was such, it was, I mean, we, that, that report received so much media coverage. You know, we was a little surprised. We figured we'd see stuff, but it received so much media coverage. Uh, we have some people like, uh, you know, um, candidates for the district attorney's office in Manhattan uh, supporting it. They read the report. They support the campaign for parole justice. We have other candidates, you know, and, and I think that this report actually exposed what we've been trying to expose for years, that New York has a death penalty, and that death penalty is death by incarceration, mm. and it is deliberate. The parole board has been complicit in this. They have to take responsibility for it. It has to be dismantled. It has to be transformed from a body that is about revenge and perpetual punishment to a body that mm-hmm. values human transformation and redemption. And I think that message is coming out loud and clear now. 
Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I hope that you and I together are right about that. In my experience, the more people understand what's actually happening in New York State prisons, the less they support them. So everything you and the RAP campaign are doing to shine a light on the reality of prisons is, is making a big difference. Jose, I want to thank you so much for coming and talking to me for this first episode of Meeting the Moment. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm Kathleen Pequeño with North Star Fund. I've been speaking with Jose Hamza Saldana of the RAP campaign. You can learn more about the Release Aging People in Prison campaign at rapcampaign.com. That's rap, R-A-P-P, campaign.com. Meeting the Moment is a North Star Fund podcast. Thanks so much to our magician of an audio engineer, Greg Lacan. If you visit northstarfund.org moment, you'll find all the episodes, including transcripts and links related to each episode's guest. Thanks so much for listening.